Stories, awakening, possibility, social impact. Creating a culture of compassion, connection, and collaboration. You are listening to Hollyhock Talks, a podcast about the teachers and luminaries that make Hollyhock extraordinary. Hollyhock is Canada's leading leadership learning centre, located on Cortez Island. Hollyhock Talks brings a little piece of Hollyhock magic to you, wherever you are listening. This is Farah of Hollyhock Talks. I'm really delighted and honored to be here with Stephen Jenkinsons, a prolific thinker and visionary who provokes insightful ways of shifting cultural norms and paradigms and inspires new ways of thinking and being. We're here to talk about elderhood, which is the program he's teaching at Hollyhock, and also the subject of his new book, Come of Age, The Case for Elderhood in a Time of Trouble. The title of your book, the title of your book, Come of Age, is an imperative or directive. What's the call to action for elders? Well, it's actually, um, it cuts two directions um, as far as the grammar goes. Yes, it's certainly in in many respects almost a call to arms, and it's an imperative, as you say, but it's also... You know, we use it um, not very commonly as an as an adjectival phrase describing something that seems to have come to a kind of fullness, you could call it, or um, maybe not completion, but a certain a sense of um, depth when you describe something that has come of age. Yeah, so it's a it's an admiring phrase as much as it's a cajoling one, and I hope I'm quite sure that both of those tones are in the new book for anybody who cares to spend a little time with it. And as far as um, your question goes, it seems to me that uh, in the dominant culture of North America, elderhood is principally uh, understood in terms of its absence instead of its presence. And it's a sad observation to make, but I'm fairly sure it's true. And it goes, it's very simply, it's something like this. You know, we have now already, it's not a future condition, we already have more old people um, in the dominant culture of North America than we've ever had before, both as a, in real numbers and as a percentage of the population. And um, if it were true that life experience automatically translates into wisdom, then we would be the wisest people the earth had ever seen. That's the simple math of it. Um, Perhaps this is a matter of opinion or perhaps not, but I look around and I see us in many ways as the most or one of the most juvenile and um, um, untutored and uninitiated and deeply self-indulgent cultures that the world has ever seen. At the same time that we have more old people per square foot than we've ever had. So how to understand this coincidence? And my answer to that is, I don't think it's a coincidence. I think there's a bit of a cause and effect relationship between those two things. To the point where it may be true that, well, the first part is true. And the first part is 
Uh, we have more people, old people per square foot now because, you know, the medical technology has improved, quote unquote, immeasurably in the last 50 years. And that's one of the signs that people are living older lives, longer lives. And uh, this, presumably, the outcome of this would be that people are living the longer lives they have in mind for themselves. But I worked in the death trade for many years, and I can assure you that that's not the case, that people are living longer lives with more prolonged periods of deep dissatisfaction, of deep, almost an existential alienation from the culture around them and their times, uh, from their own bodies, certainly. And maybe it comes to this, that there's something about our extending our lives and thwarting or stymieing the natural time frame that applies to human life, whatever you might call it, 60 years or 70 or whatever the number might be. But there must be a relationship between our willingness to, to stymie or to thwart a, quote, natural aging process with how many elders we've ended up with. So that's a very roundabout way of saying this. Elderhood seems to be a consequence of life's limits, not life's extensions and victories. And the more you have extensions and victories and prolonging, the fewer elders you have, because there's something about that limiting thing that cultivates elderhood out of agedness. So if I understand correctly, there's something about coming to terms with our own ending that changes the way that we live. So by prolonging life, we're intervening with that process. And you could go one step further and say, by prolonging life, we're asking less and less of ourselves, seeking more and more. And that, that extension of our, of our desires and our, our kind of willfulness simply to keep going seems to compromise older people's capacity to have their desirousness traded in for something like wisdom. So this is my way of saying that wisdom seems to come from contending with limit. Contending does not mean winning. It means learning how to live a limited life. And I'm not just talking about the length of your years now, obviously. I'm talking about our entire way of life, which is, you know, fundamentally consuming and taking and the rest. All of those things together have produced a, a culture of, of aged, middle-aged people, meaning that the people's middle age lasts, I don't know, 50 years now. It's something unbelievable. Uh, and their agedness never seems to happen until the last, you know, choose it, the last months of life, the last two or three years of life, something like this. And those victories, mysteriously enough, are not killing us, but they seem to be killing our ability to live a kind of life that young people admire and seek out for themselves and seek counsel from. So it's, it's an amazingly impoverished arrangement that on the surface of it looks like success. 
You mentioned the term cause and effect and self-indulgent in terms of describing our culture. And I'm wondering if you think there's a cause and effect relationship between self-indulgence and the despair and loneliness and alienation that's felt in older years and even in younger years. Yeah, yeah. That's a good question. Well, I can tell you this. I was teaching in uh, uh, just outside Vancouver about five years ago. And I asked the young man who was introducing me to engage in a kind of dialogue with me to get things rolling for maybe half an hour or so, because the subject was elderhood. And the first question he asked me with absolutely no preparation at all was this. He said he was about, say, 27 years old at the time. He said to me, all my friends are depressed. Can you tell me why? Can you imagine, you know, beginning a conversation in front of 100 people where somebody asks you that? I mean, it's, it's not a question that you answer by generalizing, obviously. And it's a question you answer first by acknowledging. I mean, it's an absolutely tragic state of affairs that in the most affluent country in the world, or one of them, you have legions of people in their 20s who have a kind of chronic despair about the world that is about to be handed over to them. And uh, it, it doesn't seem to have overly troubled people my age in their 50s and 60s and 70s. Uh, people my age seem to be looking for as much of a psychological or spiritual payday as people in their 20s or 30s might, right? So, I, you know, it seems, yes, I think you're absolutely right in your question that there is a, a deep and tragic connection between older people's unwillingness to taste the limits of life and younger people tasting those limits in a way that's almost premature, meaning that they don't have a, enough life experience to help them recognize limits as a kind of God-given necessity, if you will, and not a defeat. And it registers upon them as a kind of defeatedness. They look to people twice their age and they see someone who has engaged in a period of, you know, prolonged self-satisfaction and without any deep wisdom to have come from it. And, you know, my kids are in their early 30s. I can't imagine, frankly, even speaking with them, what their view of the world that they're coming to is because it bears no resemblance to the world I was born into 60-odd years ago. What do you think has been a part of that change in in our world that so much has changed in such a short time? Well, this is actually, I have a, a section of the new book called The Rate of Change, where I'm, t I'm talking about this very thing that you're asking me. And it would appear, well, I'll point to two things that are sort of parallel. One is that there's a, there are the changes that we can observe, you know, the technological changes, the gizmo changes, like what's enabling you and I to speak right now, uh, things of that kind. And then there's the rate at which these changes are happening, which is a different order of change. And that is increasingly rapid, you know, as the years click by, so that even the years clicking by seem more rapid than they had once done. And 
it's to the point now where people in their 30s and 40s, their expertise is being is being uh, lapped or outstripped by the technical expertise of people in their late teens and early 20s, which is which which forces the idea of retirement or at least of um, uh, I'm blanking on the word when people are no longer necessary, something like redundant. Um, people are becoming redundant in the IT field in their 40s. So what's happening to the idea of received wisdom in a world that is that is um, panting after change for its own sake? Uh, it's one of the things that prompted me to to write the book, frankly. And uh, um, probably the rate of change comes down to this: we have uh, enormous um, uh, diagnoses of attention deficit disorder amongst you know, kids and, and people in their teens and early 20s. And it's a fact of life in the educational system where it's very, very difficult to engineer uh, having kids pay attention to the world around them. And it's viewed to be, I suppose, some kind of neurological dilemma. I'm going to say suggest something else about it in a second. But if you look at the other end of life, the bookend of the other bookend of life, you see people with neurodegenerative diseases uh, in extraordinary numbers uh, amongst the old. And you ask yourself, the old and the young are having remarkable um, deficits visit them, which seem to be you know, medical physical deficits. But I wonder if what they fundamentally are instead are signs signs of this rate of change. Um, you know, there's the notion in the ecology field, so-called sentinel species. I think frogs would be one, and I'm not, I'm not a scientist by any stretch, but as I understand the idea, sentinel species are particularly susceptible to subtle changes in their environment, and, and they can suffer. Uh, they're the early warning system of um, ecological demise, if you will. And I wouldn't be surprised in 20 or 30 years from now, somebody's going to look up and say, wow, I think that's what old people and young people are in the dominant culture of North America. There are human sentinel species and their disturbances in their memory capacity and in their attention deficit capacity uh, seem to tell us that something's going on and it's registering upon them first. That's definitely a completely different way of perceiving what's happening in terms of those medical issues. I'd like to ask you about a word that you mentioned quite early on that I think is very relevant, and that is the word initiated. What does it mean to be initiated, and what impact does that have? Okay, well, um, you know, I have to generalize uh, for, for this answer. I'll do my best. But my understanding of initiation is it's a kind of life stage detonated cultural event, by which I mean these things, there's not just one at puberty. I mean, that's the one that I think people usually think of in North America, but, but there's actually a handful. There's one at birth. There's probably one at teething. There's one at first steps. 
at age, you know, two or two and a half or three or whatever it is. Uh, there's one at puberty, as we know. Uh, there's probably, certainly, that's what marriage is or weddings. And ultimately, there should be one at the advent of elderhood. And finally, there should be run around dying. So there's at least a handful in any sane culture that you could call them rites of passage, if you will. And the whole purpose of having ceremonies to attend these things is the recognition that the previous stage of life does not go willingly, does not give itself up, does not simply stop, that the previous stage of life will hold on for dear life as any living thing will. So it has to be executed. It has to be ended with some degree of, you know, concerted, culturally endorsed force, if you will. So the one you're asking me, uh, or the one I was referring to earlier when I said initiated, comes to this. If you come of age, meaning let's say you come into your 30s or 40s, and your life has been basically an unbroken chain that began in your teens, and your, your motivations, your goals, and so on were set then, and you continue to uh, pursue them in basically the same ways, your understanding of romance uh, or, or relationship you know, comes from when you were 10 years old and, you know, how you're related to your parents and your siblings. And I could go on with the examples, but my point is that if all of those associations are not ended properly when your childhood is ended and you come into your 30s and 40s with an unbroken sequence of assumptions about how life should be, nobody should be surprised that our principal addiction is to acquiring things and to feeling safe, which is what I've seen. You know, even in the programming for the, um, for the retreat centers and so on, if you really look at the programs that are on offer, a staggering number of them promise safe environments and risk-free introspections and just this remarkably um, lame, from my point of view, uh, series of programs which are designed to make sure that nothing strange happens to anyone that that the whole outcome has to be controlled before it begins and that everybody's okay at the end of it you know and i i I don't pretend to know how this started or when it started but i do know that i've noticed it many many places i've been invited to talk and as you might guess from the way i'm talking about it i'm not one of those guys and uh, into remarkable uh, friction and pushback and animosity and so on when I don't have the keys to the kingdom to sell to people when we're talking about elderhood in particular. When older people come to my talks about elderhood, one of the things they're waiting for is for me to tell them how to be one. And the other thing they're waiting for is me to tell them that they already are one. They want the recognition. And there's a lot of anger, let me tell you, when that doesn't happen. And that expectation is a direct consequence of the lack of an initiatory experience that ends childhood and all its expectations 30 or 40 years before that moment. So it comes down to what you mentioned before, that we're a very juvenile culture in the way that we're living on this planet. 
Well, you know, to call it, I know I use the word, I think, but juvenile, if we call that juvenile, it kind of discredits and demeans uh, kids, you know, and kids who are acting in a juvenile way are acting in an age-specific and age-appropriate fashion. I guess the point I would make, what you're asking me about is that it becomes, it's no longer a naturally occurring thing when a 45 or 55-year-old person is looking for the same kind of things for themselves and their lives that a 20-year-old, excuse me, is. That's not, that's not continuity. That's something gone terribly wrong, it seems to me. And that terrible wrongness is not just a question of degree. There's something fundamental about the acquisitive sort of consumer-mindedness of the dominant culture of North America addicted to growth. I guess that's the big one to me. You know, uh, we're probably coming to the end of our time here, and I, I would just offer you this observation. There is something about elderhood that it is achieved by a recognition that growth is supposed to end. It's not a limitless thing. Basically, limitless growth is what a suburb is. All the box stores, that's what they are. That's what tumors are. I'm talking about cancerous tumors in the body. They're limitless growth. That's not present to any consequence. You know, it's kind of sociopathic. That's what growth for its own sake is. And when you have learning centers and retreat centers and so on that advertise themselves as places for you know, limitless, boundless personal growth. I'm terrified at that prospect because if we look around at the the diminishment of the natural world, it's a direct consequence of us not challenging the idea that growth, our personal growth, is not good for the world, period. There's no negotiation about that. It's demonstrable and it's already there. So in, in a strange way, I've written a book that's making the case for the end of personal growth and the beginning of a kind of what I called deepening by diminishment. That's in a, in a formulaic way of saying it, that's to me what elders are. They are diminished and as such, but you know, by life and its various travails and by diminishment, they have deepened in their understanding, something like wine, the aged wine, And this is what becomes nourishing to someone half their age. There's so much more that I want to ask, but I know that our time is very short. And, you know, if there was one thing that you hope people will be impacted by in your program at Hollyhock, what is that one thing? You know, I would never let myself be um, narrowed to one thing by, you know, in that kind of question. So um, I I don't think it has to come down to that, but I do take the spirit of what you're asking me. One of the things that that I'm coming for is to give people at least whoever appears, you know, of, of whatever age, and I'm really hoping that a number of ages appear because that is who it's for. And a program about elderhood is not a program about how to be old since you're already there. But, you know, my, the reason I'm coming is to do what I can 
to breathe over and over again these um, deeply unwelcome propositions like I've been telling you and trying to give people an understanding that not getting what you want is not the same thing as things going wrong. That what we want has to be brought back in line with what sustains the world. And elderhood is not an exercise in self-expression. Elderhood is an exercise in serving the world, not serving our personal program for, you know, for um, personal happiness. And um, it's a very strange sell. And maybe fewer people will come to it based on what I just said, or maybe more. I, I have no idea. But um, early signs are that the book is both just, it's not out yet, but it will be out by the time I get to Hollyhock. And early signs are that it's, it's a kind of disturbing proposition, what I've been telling you. But the other half of it is, is that at least younger people are smelling something in the air of what I'm saying. And they seem to experience it as a kind of possibility they didn't dare imagine was there, that someone twice their age could call into question the life stylings of people in their 50s and 60s and call them to account, not out of guilt induction, not out of blanket condemnation, but as a last ditch appeal for, young, for older people to appear in service to the world on behalf of people half their age. That'll be something like the program. Well, it makes my heart resonate with happiness to hear what you say about, you know, serving the world and not serving ourselves, because I think there is uh, something deep inside young hearts that are born today that are wanting to be a part of a different world. Um, so it's been such a um, insightful conversation and dialogue, and I really appreciate you taking the time you know, being so far away and having such a full program to offer a little taste of what will be in your book and what will be at the program at Hollyhock. Well, I listen, I really appreciate that you reached out and asked for me to do it because um, I don't know how old you are, but I can tell by your voice that you're younger than I am. And believe it or not, you know, I don't have to meet you to be able to set myself up for business, if you will, with people you're able to meet. Right. We don't have to have a relationship for me to be able to do that. And um, and that is what my, uh, you know, my deep commitment is, is I'm not excluding people my age. But at the end of the day, it can't be for people my age. People my age have already had all of their needs catered to during their entire consuming lives. And if I can be frank with you and with them, it's enough already. <laughs> so. So I do appreciate you asking me to do it. And yes, uh, it, it could be and should be a longer conversation. But why don't we say this? Why don't you just come to Hollyhock when I'm there and we can meet and we'll see if I can pull off what I'm promising here today. How about that? That's a great invitation. Thank you so much. Okay, we have a deal. Thank you, too. Stories, awakening, possibility, social impact. 
creating a culture of compassion, connection, and collaboration. You are listening to Hollyhock Talks, a podcast about the teachers and luminaries that make Hollyhock extraordinary. Hollyhock is Canada's leading leadership learning centre, located on Cortez Island. Hollyhock Talks brings a little piece of Hollyhock magic to you, wherever you are listening. Thank you.